welcome to Queers & Co, the podcast on self-empowerment, body liberation and activism for queer folks and allies. I'm your host, Jem Kennedy. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm a transformational practitioner and coach living in the UK. Hey folks, welcome to another episode. It's a bank holiday Monday when I'm recording this and I'm enjoying some work time, but also noticing that I'm feeling quite tired. So I'm trying to be really gentle with myself. Hopefully you are too. And this is definitely something that my guest today would advocate for. Before I tell you a little bit about my guest for today, I just wanted to let you know that there's a point in the podcast where my guest talks about her child and her child at the time was using she, her pronouns, but since then has started to use he, him pronouns. And I've checked out with him whether it was okay for us to keep that part in and he was okay with that um, if I let you know that now he uses he, him pronouns. So please just be mindful of that. And also towards the end, weirdly, I think for the, like the last 10-15 minutes, there's a point where I'm talking before, almost like I can predict the future, before my guest. So something has happened with the audio syncing up. I'm really sorry if it feels annoying, but I really wanted to be able to still put that bit out there because I think it's really got some great stuff that my guest shares in there. So um, hopefully it won't feel too frustrating. So without further ado, let me tell you who my guest actually is. She is an autistic advocate, a mental health first aider, a public speaker, self-care coach and founder of the podcast Autistic Actually. I'm sure you're going to love her if you haven't come across her work before. Introducing my glorious friend, Heidi Maver. Hi Heidi, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Not at all. So I'm really excited to chat to you. We're friends in real life um, and... I noticed when I was kind of thinking of things that I want to ask you that there's so much that I, obviously knowing you, take for granted. So it'll be really cool to be able to um, hear you talk about that more and share it with other people. Um, So first of all, I wondered if you'd be happy just to introduce yourself and kind of how you identify in different ways. Yeah, sure. So my name's Heidi. I identify as and am an autistic ADHD adult. Um, I use the pronoun she, her. I'm comfortable with they, them as well. Um, I live in West Yorkshire. Um, and when people ask me what I do, my shortcut is I'm a professional gobshite. <laughs> so I um, am a public speaker, educator. I'm a trained mental health first aider. And I do a lot of work in the mental health and neurodivergence space around um, self-care, um, mental health, especially for neurodivergent people. Um, and I also run a program called the Unstoppables program, which is a specifically a health, a self-care program for people who just want to get better at being good to themselves. So yeah, I've got quite a few ping- fingers in quite a lot of pies. Um, and then for fun and also for a career for a long time, I also work in burlesque and cabaret as a producer and an MC. So yeah, quite a lot going on because, you know, ADHD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's me kind of. Great. And hmm, I'm wondering where to start. So I guess... Yeah, I guess let's come to burlesque shortly, but it would be really great to hear about um, neurodivergence and what your journey has been with that, because I know that that's something that's unfolded like during the course of time that we've known each other. Yeah, yeah. So I'm kind of, I'm 45 now um, and I was quite late to the autistic party (laughs) in terms of understanding that I was in the party. Um, I've got a daughter, she's just turned 16 um, and she was having some difficulties in school and it became apparent over a period of 
about, well, it actually became apparent very quickly, but then it became very clear once we knew what we were looking at, that she was neurodivergent and that a lot of the difficulties that she was having in terms of barriers to education, especially, were linked to that. So they were linked to her sensory difficulties. Um, And kind of what came out of the back of that is that when you're a parent of a child who is recognised as being autistic, all of a sudden you are kind of flung into this new world and there's a lot of unpicking of stereotypes and unpacking of your own internalised ableism and just trying to get your head around and working out how to reframe all of your experiences as a family. And during that, I kind of had a lot of self-questioning around, you know, why had I never made the connection before? Why, when it was so obvious once I knew what I was looking for, why had I missed all of those kind of signs, I guess, that I was looking at this incredibly amazing, truly autistic individual? And what kind of came to, well, kind of dropped on me a bit like a you know, like in those cartoons when they drop an anvil on you, it comes from nowhere, was like, well, the reason that I didn't ever think that she was anything other than inverted commas normal, and I hate that word, is because the way that she presents is exactly as I present. And mm. then I made the connection that, flipping heck, <laughs> the reason I didn't realise she was autistic is because I didn't know I was autistic either. So mm-hmm. we've been on a bit of a journey together, really. Um, you know, we are very alike and a lot of our presentation is quite similar, but in many ways we're very, very different as well. So we're a really good example of just because you've met one autistic person, that just means you've just went, met one autistic person, Yeah. Um, which has been a real a real discovery for me personally, but together we've kind of been on this joint voyage of discovery, learning about our neurotype. Um, so it's been lovely to kind of do that together, but it's also been super challenging, um, you know, and as an adult kind of going back through experiences from earlier in your life and looking at them with a new lens and a new understanding of yourself is really liberating, but also really quite confusing so mm. we've been navigating our way through that together and you know whilst we've been trying to get support in place for her as well and so yeah that's where we're at really and then I guess one of the advantages of that is that because of my neurotype and I suppose quite handily um autism and neurodivergence has kind of become my special interest <laughs> um but what that has meant is that I've been able to really advocate really well for my daughter and it's put me in a position where you know I've been on this crash course of lived experience and reading absolutely anything and everything I get my hands on you know if you want something researched well give it to an autistic person um and I'm kind of you know expert by lived experience in this particular field now so we're moving into a new chapter for us as a family my daughter is back in education now she was out of education for over 12 months and things are starting to settle down for us as a family and we're learning a lot more about how and why we do things and so I'm in a position now where I'm starting to support and help other families with similar difficulties so and I'm seeing that now for other people that I'm working with that kind of like that domino effect of revelations where someone in the family is identified as autistic and then there's kind of like this ripple effect yeah oh. it's huge isn't it massive I remember, I remember massive. Kieran and um, so Kieran Bowes I remember when um I was talking to him right at the beginning of our sort of discovery into neurodivergence and he was like and the penny drops yeah. <laughs> I think there's that moment where um you know that 
autistic people are already aware of that there's going to be that moment for most families but the families themselves maybe aren't quite aware of that yeah. or think they're the one family that isn't neurodivergent like as parents or something um yeah it's interesting you get that a lot and I think it's and it's one of those things that you can't kind of force on people mm-hmm. you, know, you you're ready when you're ready and I think especially when you're advocating for your children you don't necessarily have brain space to think about what that means for you and what that says about your neurotype. And, you know, so you kind of have to let people take it at their own pace. But as an advocate and as someone who supports families, I spend many moments saying to parents, um, don't forget that this is a, you know, this has, um, this is a, it can be an inherited, you know, condition. I hate that word, but, you know, don't forget there's family connections with neurodiversity mm-hmm. and, um, and when someone does make that connection, it's almost like, there you go. <laughs> now we can start with the real work, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. I've never thought about it that way. When you're in that place of like really trying to support and advocate for your children, that someone coming along and being like, hey, the person you thought you were and how you've operated your whole life is actually not the case. And then to kind of see everything through a different lens is hugely challenging at a time where you're already sort of trying to learn so much. Yeah. It, it, it it's it's pretty exhausting mm-hmm. um you're kind of well I know everyone's experience is different but I've certainly spoken to other people who have kind of come to that realization for themselves as adults and it's a double-edged sword of there's so much clarity that comes straight away and then what closely follows pretty quickly is a lot of confusion mm-hmm. because you basically things that you have kind of come to understand about the whys and the wheres and the hows you do things with this new lens of knowing about um, autism, for example, colours all of that differently. Mm-hmm. And um, it can be, it can take quite a lot to kind of work through and process. And I do think it's a useful pro- it's a useful process to go through and it's really liberating and it can be really freeing, but equally it takes a lot of brain space and often mm-hmm. You know, if you've got families who are just coming into that place where they're realizing that their children might need support, for example, in school, that in itself is so labor intensive mm-hmm. um, that there often isn't room, you know, for you to think about yourself and your own identity. And, you know, your, your identity basically is kind of like tiger parent fighting for a child. Mm-hmm. There isn't room for you to then start unpicking your own neurotype in the middle of all of that. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, And it makes me think of, well, I guess two things. So one of the things is that you're really kind of um, open and public about uh, the experiences that you and your daughter have had over the last um, while, sort of experiencing and discovering more about yourselves. And one of those instances where you've been really open about was um, when you experienced an autistic burnout last year, so in 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess like from a friend perspective, I, I, you know, was able to witness what that was like for you. But I guess the fact that you're able to share that with people in, um, you know, through your social media and through the work that you do is really powerful. But for anyone who doesn't know what autistic burnout is or what it looks like, I wondered if you'd be happy just to say a bit more about it. Yeah. So basically when you are autistic, often, um, the way that you do things, the way that you experience the world means that um, things that ordinarily wouldn't be uh, destabilizing for people can have a massive effect on you. 
So for example, if you're someone who has a different kind of sensory profile, for me, one of the things that is really uh, difficult for me um, in terms of trying to self-regulate is I I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big feeler. So it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, well, it's a lot, it's a massive myth that autistic people don't have empathy and don't feel things. Mm-hmm. I'm like super feely. Um, and I, and when I'm stressed or when I'm overwhelmed or when I'm tired, my feeling dial gets turned right up. So I think a lot of people experience that. They kind of like have this emotional, I guess, um, the emotional radar that tracks where they are in their wellness. So when they're not feeling on top of things, they become much more emotional. Um, But for me, when that happens, when I'm under a lot of pressure and maybe I'm tired and I'm overdoing it and I'm not getting enough rest and I'm not taking enough sensory breaks, um, I basically hit overwhelm. Um, And you'll hear people talk about autistic meltdowns, which is basically when you'll have an explosion of either activity or emotion or sometimes even words um that it's kind of like a release it's like the way it's been described a lot as you know people talk about shaking a pop bottle and then taking the lid off and then you know, that explosion of coca-cola that's kind of what a meltdown is and then what an autistic burnout is is kind of the next step on from that which is after all of the pop or of the coke has exploded out the bottle you're left with this empty bottle um and this void um and sometimes burnout can last you know a couple of days and sometimes it can last you know a couple of months or even up to 12 months 18 months depending on what's led up to that and I think especially for people who don't recognize their own neurotype it can be quite scary and quite debilitating and I know that previously when I've had what I now know are autistic burnouts period of burnout I always thought that it was a mental health crisis Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really common experience for people who aren't diagnosed or who haven't had their neurotype recognized. Um, and actually, once you know that, yes, mental health plays a part, 100% it does, because there aren't very many autistic people who make it into adulthood without that impacting their mental health. It's not, there's kind of a, an element of, once you recognize that that's what's going on and you know what your triggers are and you know why it's happening, it does take away some of the fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and it helps, and it helps you to feel more like, well, I know why this is happening, and I know that the reason it's happening is because I need to rest, and I need my brain needs to rest. Um, but often you'll get situations where people hit burnout, or you'll hear autistic people talking about, I'm I'm almost at burnout, you know, and then they'll, and if they're good at regulating, they'll be like, I just have to stop now, mm-hmm. and, you know. And I've got autistic friends, and they, and we kind of have this thing where we agree that. You know, if someone says, oh, I'm, I'm almost in burnout or I'm almost in meltdown, you step back and you give them space, you know, and, and then they come back to you when they're not feeling quite so unregulated. Mm-hmm. But I think with burnout, for, for me, my experience of it this time last year was literal shutdown of pretty much everything but my vital functioning skills. Um, and I know that at the time, you know, we were – we were messaging back and forth and you were around for that. And I think the people around me could see that this was more than just that I was a bit tired. You know, mm-hmm. it kind of, the way it presented was like, um, well, I, I felt like I'd been hit by a truck. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I had just no energy and really no processing power. I couldn't couldn't think clearly. I didn't know um quite where I was in time and space. Um I was very tearful and, you know, blue and those things. But the biggest thing was just the feeling of absolute intense and overwhelming fatigue Mm -hmm. that I could not shake. And it felt like no amount of rest was making much difference. And I did spend two weeks when I didn't get out of bed at all. Um, And I know that that's kind of like, that's the worst burnout I've ever had. Um, But I know that I have had burnouts previously. I just didn't know that's what they were. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it's helpful to be able to frame them in a way that is more is it more possible to understand like what's going on? Because I guess otherwise you'd be like, where has this come from? I maybe was feeling okay before or whatever it might be. But what is there anything that you'd say that really helped you to kind of move out of that burnout phase? Or is it really just a case of like waiting for it to pass? Yeah, I think that's the hardest part of it. It is a case of resting um, and giving yourself t- self time to recover. And you kind of can't force it. Um, and I, and I had a, I have a friend and during, in the middle of all of that, I remember saying to her, I just wish that I felt okay again. And she was like, don't do that to yourself. Like that's like internalized ableism 101, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not well, don't be giving yourself a hard time because you're not well, you know, don't be punishing yourself because your brain is telling you to stop and rest. That's what you have to do. Stop trying to be better. Just do what you need to do and rest. And I think I was quite surprised by by that and a bit challenged, but also that was really helpful to me because I know that on a few occasions I felt like I was well again um, and I pushed it too far and I ended up back in bed. Mm-hmm. And you'll know, you know, the past year, I'm pretty much queen of naps now. Um you know, I kind of, I'm really good at resting now, <laughs> um, which I have to be, yeah. but I, um, it, it does forever change you. You know, I was talking about this this morning when you have a burnout, um, you do recover, but you're not the same as you were before the burnout. Mm-hmm. You, you, you recovered in a different way and you'll often experience a loss of particular skills or sources of joy um and and it does feel different and I kind of feel like as an autistic person you go through life once you've realized and got to grips with the fact that the way that you operate is not the way that the world is set up um that you then spend the rest of your life working out what that means for you in terms of what what adjustments you need to make for yourself yeah. and where you need to be kind to yourself to make that manageable um, and to keep yourself safe, I guess. So it's all, it's good learning and um, it's useful information. And I'm hoping that, you know, perhaps the information that I have about burnout and meltdown and shutdown will help my daughter so that she won't necessarily have to experience the same with quite the severity or certainly without the confusion, mm-hmm. you know, of not knowing exactly what's going on. I think it's unlikely she'll ever manage to escape burnout completely because it kind of goes with the territory but I do hope that the knowledge of what it looks and feels like will help her to not be quite so terrified um 
and to give herself a bit give herself an easier ride with it mm-hmm. rather than punishing herself over you know what's wrong with me why can't I be just like other people you know there's nothing wrong with you and you're not like other people yeah that's fine yeah and a lot of the work you do is around self-care so helping people whether they're experiencing burnout or neurodivergent or not but like actually um how do they build a sustainable self-care practice and I wondered mm-hmm. if you had any kind of um any like what what main tips because I talk about this a lot in my work as well but we see in the mainstream that self-care in my opinion is a load of shit it's just like co-opted and whitewashed um and it's not actually about really looking after yourself it's about looking after yourself if you buy things or you know within a certain way that you're allowed to going to a spa or something um but I wondered if there are any kind of um, tips that you'd give to people who are looking to establish a self-care practice, whether to avoid autistic burnout or um, any other kind of burnout too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a lot to be learned that a lot of neurotypical people can learn from the autistic experience mm-hmm. because basically, well, for me, the way I think of it is that for many autistic people, the way that our autism um, affects us in kind of a day-to-day way is that some of the dials on things that neurotypical people would experience within a certain range, our dials are just turned right up. Mm-hmm. Um, so the things that work for neurodivergent brains work for neurotypical brains as well. Not always either way around. <laughs> but I think one of the things that's been my biggest lesson throughout this is I've I've been poorly um i.e. in burnout and in sort of, I guess, mental health crisis. And the two kind of, for me, have gone in hand in hand for about 18 months, maybe even two years. And I think what has been really useful for me during that time is just reminding myself that just because I'm not firing on all cylinders, that doesn't mean that today isn't worth experiencing. And it doesn't mean that I'm not allowed to take joy in moments when they arrive mm-hmm. um and it also doesn't mean that I have to get out of bed if I don't feel like it so one of the biggest things for me with self-care and I agree with you right you know like that self-care is not spa days you know like spa days are great but that really isn't what self-care is about yeah. self-care is about cutting yourself some slack and being kind to yourself and I guess you know, like one of the things with the Unstoppables program, our kind of motto is no guilt, no shame, no self-inflicted emotional pain. And I kind of feel like that should be, that's my lesson. That's my rules for self-care. You know, there's a lot of talking to myself, moving away from why am I like this to it makes total sense given the the situation and the stimulus and my neurotype that I would be feeling and expressing myself in this way. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. You know, don't tell yourself it doesn't make sense because it does, you know? So I think that's one of the big things. And I think it's funny because the ADHD with me means that I am, I crave busyness and, people and connection and excitement and having something to look forward to and then my autistic side wants to like be on my own (laughs) (laughs) um so it's constant you know and for a long time my ADHD like was absolutely in the driver's seat Mm -hmm. um you know which I think is quite a common experience 
particularly for people who are kind of like confident, I guess. Um, But one of the things that I find really helpful is giving myself permission to do things or experience things or express myself in a way that makes me feel safe and comfortable. So often autistic people will do what we call stimming. So it's uh, self-stimulating movements or activities, recognizing that for me, sensory stuff can be really calming. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I'm constantly rubbing things. I mean, you know, I, I hardly a moment that I'm sat down when I'm not under a blanket. <laughs> um, I like the feeling of a blanket on me. We have sofa blankets in our house. Um, and, you know, whether that just be a regular fleecy blanket or a weighted blanket. As a child, I was a thumb sucker. Um, and I got a lot of comfort from sucking my thumb and rubbing the bridge of my nose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I enjoy um, things like playing with putty, <laughs> you know, which I know is a, I don't like slime, but I do like putty okay. a lot. Um, so it's about understanding your sensory profile as well. You know, like a roll of um, bubble wrap, mm. you know, and let me pop every single one of them, you know. <laughs> so I think part of it, that, regardless of your neurotype, knowing what your sensory profile looks like, knowing which part of your sensory experience gives you comfort and a feeling of safety is really helpful. Because in times when you're feeling overwhelmed, if, for example, you know that that one of the calming things for you is a weighted blanket, you know, the first time I put a weighted blanket on, I was like, oh my God. (laughs) How did I not know this was a thing? The fact is I did know it was a thing. As a child, I slept under three duvets. It wasn't because I was cold. It was because I liked the heat, the the weight of three duvets. And my mum always used to say, you'll be so hot. You won't be able to sleep. But I loved it. Mm -hmm. I loved that, you know. Um, Same with animals. If animals sit on me, I kind of like, and we had a thing when we were kids where, um, me and my brother would do this thing where we would lie on top of each other and we'd call it the human blanket. Oh. So one of us would lie on the floor and the other one would like climb on their back and lie on them flat. <laughs> um, I know now that was me sensory seeking, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that's a very long answer, isn't it? But I um, <laughs> I do think it's useful to start to understand what your, what your sensory profile is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of that, um, thinking about thumb sucking, for example, or other other behaviors or um things you might engage in as children that idea that we're told by adults you need to leave those behind at some point and like they're not okay um Mm. it's it's really one it's really childish two it's really ableist but that that kind of um it's another way of being disconnected from our bodies I think like if we're not allowing ourselves to like touch something that feels really good or um, be in a position or a place that makes us feel really safe because we're adults and we're not supposed to do those things. Um, it's it's an, another way that I guess we have to get to know ourselves again if, if we've been separated from that. Yeah. And it's super ableist mm. to tell somebody, um, you know, it's it's not very, not very grown up to suck your thumb yeah. or, you know, it's, it's weird to um, sit in a position where your legs go numb, <laughs> you know. Or you know, I spend 
I spent many an hour as a child upside down on the couch. Mm-hmm. Like that was my preferred position. <laughs> Head standing on the couch, doing anything, when watching telly, talking to people. I was always a chair rocker. I'm a pacer. Um, in fact, I've there's reviews written by people talking about my emceeing style in cabaret and one person compared me to a proud lioness strutting up, <laughs> up and down uh, uh, across a cage and I thought well I quite like yeah, that so but cool. I am a painter you know and I'm also a rocker mm-hmm. um so um it's maybe not very pronounced but when I'm standing I'll rock from foot to foot just because it's how I feel comfortable mm-hmm. you know and people are like mm, that's a bit weird well, really? Does it really make any difference to you? Right. <laughs> you know, and and I think for a lot of, I mean, it, you know, I think the kind of the classic stereotype is the eye contact thing. Mm. You know, for lots of autistic people, eye contact is really uncomfortable, and for some of us, it's painful. Um, but there's this kind of like insistence that we make eye contact. Um, and you know, the thing with eye contact is, I do make eye contact, but I think it's because I've trained myself to do it but um quite often I'll cheat it so I won't be looking you in the eye I'll be looking at the bridge of your nose or one of the difficulty difficult things is and one of the things I've learned is if I say to people please don't be offended if I'm not looking at you when I'm speaking to you because literally if I'm making eye contact with you my inner monologue is saying okay, now you've made some eye contact. Now don't stare. Make sure you blink. You might be looking a little weird. Look away, look back again. Have I been looking for too long? Have I been staring? Am I coming across as... All of that. And I can just, by just not looking at someone, I don't have to do that to myself. And I can actually concentrate on what's being said. So sometimes not looking someone in the eye means I can listen more carefully. Yeah, Yeah, and that's just another form of self-care, I guess, like being able to actually allow yourself not to have a really intense thought pattern whilst having a conversation with someone if it just means not doing a thing that neurotypicals expect people to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm interested, you mentioned pacing up and down the stage like a lioness. Um, and you mentioned burlesque when you introduced yourself. And I just wondered if you'd be happy to share more about that because it has played a really big role in your life at times. Yes, it has. Yeah. So I am... Um... I trained in English and performing arts, like I did a degree and everything. Um, I wanted to be a performer um, and then went to uni and had like a massive crisis of confidence and a period of burnout Mm. um, and basically lost my confidence, I guess. And then, you know, did what lots of people do, do, went went back home, got a proper job. um, And I did work in the arts. Um, so I was fortunate. I, it wasn't like I gave up completely on that side of things, but I definitely, I didn't perform from graduating until my burlesque debut, which was 14 years later. So I had a period of over 10 years when I didn't step on stage at all. Um, which for me was quite weird because I've been kind of doing stuff like Amdram and stuff since I was teeny tiny, you know, like the whole did ballet did tap was rubbish at both by the way um absolutely appallingly bad so I had that period of not be, not performing and I sort of had I'd really lost my way I got married had my daughter um not long after my marriage failed and that was all quite messy and I came out the other side of that period of like 15 years um just not feeling like I was myself or knew myself um 
which I think is quite a common experience mm. for people when they have children. Um, and I felt a real disconnect with my body. You know, I'd kind of, I remember <laughs> the day that uh, my husband moved out, I owned two pairs of shoes. I owned a pair of trainers and a pair of like walking boots. And like now I, I don't even know how many pairs of shoes I have. <laughs> I know that's not a measure of a value of a person, but it is an indication that I was not fully grown into my full self mm-hmm. that enjoyed shoes. Do you know what I mean? That's <laughs> not my measure of a person, but it kind of is an interesting one. But I really had lost touch with all of that. And I I wanted to be back on stage again. And I kind of wanted to push myself a little mm. in terms of, I'd always had this kind of like quite um, risk-takey feel about me. I like excitement and I guess it's, it's partially down to my ADHD. I kind of like crave that kind of like um, safe risk, mm-hmm. I suppose. So I decided I would take some burlesque lessons. <laughs> and I think I am, um, other people were at the lessons and were just like, I'm just here for fun. And I was like, oh no, I'm here to get, I'm here to perform. <laughs> <laughs> That's my intention. And um, had the best time and absolutely loved it. And uh, debuted um, about six months after I started taking classes and that was it. I was wow. like, this is my thing, you know? And the thing is with the burlesque community is that the burlesque cabaret drag community, that's where, and I say this with affection and because I identify this way as well, but it's where the weirdos hang mm-hmm. out. So I was like, these are my people. <laughs> like you know it's like a subculture of outsiders Mm -hmm. and people who are interested in pushing boundaries and like owning their own physical beings and being sexual and um and all that amazing stuff you know that was kind of new for me um and it really did bring me into a new phase of understanding myself Mm -hmm. 100% it did And it's kind of been a part of my life now for sort of 10 years, you know, so it's something I'm very, it's part of how I express myself and and how I get seen, I suppose, like as someone who is a naturally, whether it is natural or not, but as someone who's quite a gregarious person, um, being visible is really important to me. Like it's kind of a, it is a safety thing. I was talking about the other day and I think because without getting too, too deep and meaningful, because as a child, I I didn't feel like I was seen or heard. Um, and because of that, I was vulnerable and things happened that made me feel unsafe. It's kind of like my survival technique mm-hmm. is to never be invisible or silent because if I'm seen and heard, I can't be taken advantage of. Does that make yeah, sense? Absolutely. Yeah, it really does. So, you know, what better way to do that than to um, take your clothes off and get paid? Really? <laughs> Just popping in with your episodely reminder to have a drink, take a few deep breaths and maybe move in a way that feels good to you. Perhaps you want to have a stretch or move around, change position, whatever feels comfortable. 
And while you do that, I just wanted to let you know that my course Making Waves is starting next week. It's running on the 13th and 14th. So there are two different cohorts. If you'd like to be involved, all you need to do is head to my website, gemkennedy.com slash making waves, where you'll find lots of info. Uh, testimonials and also you'll be able to sign up for your place there as well if it's not affordable for you for any reason then uh, there are scholarship places so please don't let money stop you from taking part in the course making waves is an eight-week online course where i support people to gather the inner resources they need to sustain them in living a countercultural life so whether that's um, working to make social change or just showing up in your everyday life in a way that is not aligned with the dominant culture then making waves is a, a really great course to support you with doing that and if you're listening to this in the future hi future people if you'd like to take part in making waves then head to the website too and you'll be able to see if there's a cohort running soon or add your name to the waiting list and now let's go back to Heidi and do you have any plans to go back to performing once we're allowed to be out in the real world again yeah I mean I think it's gonna I I'd moved much more into producing um you know I'm co-founder and co I was co-producer of Hebden Bridge Burlesque Festival I've stepped back from that I stepped back from that um two years ago and it kind of you know it was kind of it had run its course for me. My co-producer, Lady Wildflower, still produces the festival, um, although hasn't been able to this year for obvious reasons. Um, but I I do really enjoy producing. Um, and I did a big show that I collaborated with um, a circus on. So it was a the, the cast was a combination of circus performers and burlesque performers. And I'd like to do something like that again. It was incredible. And it was in a big top and it was just, oh, it was the best. Wow, so I'd like to do more producing work, I think. And I really enjoy emceeing. I really enjoy hosting. Um, performing, as in dancing, has kind of fallen off my radar a little bit. I, retur- I retired my signature act and I kind of feel like I put a pin in that. But, you know, never say never. You know, if given the opportunity to get naked, I'll probably get naked. So, <laughs> oh, I look forward to it whenever it happens. Come for tea at your house. Oh my god, she's got to close off again. <laughs> yeah, you know I'll be there for the performance. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, with all of these um, kind of exciting and different turns that your life has taken I guess over the last few years I know that there's a lot of really great stuff that you have coming up um, and it'll be really cool to hear more about those two um, different projects in particular um, the podcast and also this um, kind of advocacy service that you're building as well so um, we're recording this in December aren't yeah. we so it's weird because I can talk about it freely because I know that by the time this goes out we'll be launched um, so the two things that I'm doing I am producing a new podcast which is called Autistic Actually um, and it's a podcast made by autistic people for autistic people and anyone else that's interested Um, and all of my guests are going to be autistic or neurodivergent. I'm just putting the first season together. The theme for the first season is communication so often um, autism is, is and is seen as a social and communication disorder I hate the word mm. disorder. Um, but we're going to look, we're going to really dive into autistic communication, what that means. So we're going to talk about things like, you know, the standard social stuff, but also I've got a couple of um, parents of PDA children. PDA is pathological demand avoidance, which is a particular kind of autism um, in the way that it presents. So we're going to talk about PDA parenting. We're going to talk about um, 
creative expression. I've got some performers who are autistic. And we're going to come and talk about that as a means of communication. Mm-hmm. I've also got some um, uh, people who use technology for their communication. So maybe they don't use verbal communication as their primary means of um, communicating. I've just said communication a lot. <laughs> um, so that's kind of the first season and that's coming out January 2021, all being well. And then the other thing that I'm working on is I am working with two other autistic adults on a new service for neurodivergent families, particularly around um, supporting people to get help in place or support in place or adjustments in place for their children in education, but also around sort of um, mental health for families who are either neurodivergent or who are realizing that they're neurodivergent or who are supporting a family member who's neurodivergent. Um, So that's launching in January 2021, and that will be out by now. So it's called uh, Send Central. There's a free group on Facebook. So just Google Send, uh, just search for Send Central. Um, And myself and Jess Kane from Send Family Instincts and Tanya Radkin, who's an incredible autistic advocate the three of us are working on that together as like a free service for people who need signposting and information and then an advocacy service for people who need perhaps a little bit more help personalized help and also admin support with like things like filing EHCPs which is the educational health care plan which is a document you often need in place for children who have um, special educational needs and in in education settings so that's what we're doing next. It's quite exciting. Yeah, sounds brilliant. Yeah, I guess like I'm wondering how you managed to to fit all of those things in, like also whilst um, looking after yourself. Does it feel like, because um, I know you mentioned this, like wanting to be super busy, but does it feel like there's a, a balance to be struck there? Or is it when it's work that you really love, it just feels like it flows and it's much easier, I guess? I mean, the beauty of ADHD energy and uh, autistic hyperfocus definitely helps. <laughs> Um, but I am getting better and I'm still learning about how to manage my energy Mm -hmm. levels and how to take better care of myself. I mean, that's the good thing about working with two other autistic adults, which I've never had that before. So that's been really lovely, but I guess it's, you know, time will tell on that one. And I am really lucky that I've got a partner that's really good at saying, Heidi, (laughs) put your phone down (laughs) (laughs) so but it's one of the biggest challenges for me is um because I get so excited about things and I get so hyper focused on things that when I'm on something it's hard to Mm -hmm. stop um which is definitely has its advantages but it definitely has its challenges too you know when you've been working for 12 hours and you've forgotten to even get up and have Mm -hmm. a pee and then like you end up with a water infection and, you know, <laughs> so it's definitely a forever will be a chat, an ongoing challenge, I think. And I also think there's that kind of myth fallacy that you can have it mm. all. And I think we need to be us, be kinder to ourselves in terms of why would you want it all? You know, like enjoy what you have and work out what your priority is right now. That's allowed to change from moment to moment, day to day, you know, but equally don't like burn yourself out. And this applies to non to neurotypical people as well. Don't kill yourself trying to get something that is actually quite difficult Mm -hmm. for you for whatever reason, you know, like there's a difference between 
pushing yourself out of your comfort zone for something that is absolutely worth having and pushing yourself really, really hard because it's what's expected. And I think that we do too much of that to ourselves and to each other. Um, And ultimately, you know, your wellness and your health, they have to be a priority. And if that means that things take a bit longer, and if that means that some things don't get done, or some things get started and never get finished, that has to be okay. It's such an anti-capitalist and like radical way of working, I think, to especially when when you are able to be self-employed, um, why would we try and replicate the same stressful conditions that are not conducive to different neurotypes or, um, well, to any neurotypes, I would argue, working in a sort of nine-to-five mm-hmm. where you're, you know, very controlled and have very strict limits on what you can and can't do at certain times. Um, but yeah, this kind of, the possibility of breaking out of a lot of that and actually working in rhythms and um being in contact or in touch with creativity like when it comes riding that wave and then allowing that to settle like not constantly trying to do things that your um maybe your well-being or your mental health or whatever is not in the space to be doing at the time that's something mm. that i've really um like definitely learned over over the time as being um self-employed and how many people kind of get get into working for themselves either through design or necessity and they do that because they don't want to be the slave a slave mm-hmm, to the yeah. man you know and they don't want to be told when to do what to do and then they create that for themselves you know they literally paint themselves into a corner mm-hmm. of having that expectation um it, it is a delicate balance and also i think there's just no such thing as balance yeah. <laughs> What's this obsession with balance? Like everything's always in flux. Everything's always moving. You get ebbs, you get flows. That's the way that the human experience yeah. works. And I would question whether anyone who said that they have a balance, like mm. really, is that a thing? I don't know. Maybe I, I certainly have never seen it. I and And part of the joy and the excitement of it is, that you you have a personal life and a professional life mm-hmm. perhaps and sometimes you're focused on one and sometimes you're focused on the other I guess the challenge comes when you sacrifice your personal life for your professional life yeah um, yeah and I think also in the work that we do when your when your work is your personal life to some extent like where yeah. um, you know you're working with issues that are really like are you and are really important to you and central to your sort of being how do you um move in and out of work in a way that feels sustainable because I know that um I've been reflecting sort of as we come to the end of 2020 that there's very often times where I'm I'm always working and it's not that I'm sort of always at my laptop it's just that it's always ticking in the back of my mind like thinking about this thing mm-hmm. and um you know reading something in my personal life will immediately trigger me to think about oh yeah like how does that issue show up in my practice or how have I thought about that um and it can be really exhausting but I guess kind of almost stretching the two further apart and having a bit more space in between feels like it's helpful for me um, and as you say, like recognizing that there doesn't always need to be, um, or there isn't going to be a balance. I think um, Christy Forbes was really, really helped me around that. Um, seeing how she's not scared of like moving appointments or saying to people like, I've, I said I would do that, but I just can't do that right now because, um, you know, of whatever's going on. For me, that was really like um, 
yeah, I, I felt I found it really liberating to actually be like, what we can do that? Like, is that okay? Yeah, yeah. I work with a lot of clients who, you know, they'll say, oh, well, I have to do this thing because mm. I should, you know, and we do so much. That's that thing about no guilt, mm-hmm. no shame, you know, that we tell ourselves that things have to be done a particular way. And we tell ourselves those things often because they're things that we were told as we were growing up or we've taken them on from other places outside of ourselves. And actually it's not really what we want or what we really feel or what we know would be in our best interest. And we get all caught up in should, you know, and like the thing about the, it's interesting because when you do work in a field that is an extension of yourself, Mm -hmm. I guess, um, you're never not working, but then you still need to find downtime. You still need to find moments where you are, where your brain is Mm -hmm. having a rest you know, and that might not be, I was talking about this this morning, actually, that might not not necessarily be things like spa days or what have you, or flotation tanks, although I do love (laughs) a flotation tank. Um, It can be something as simple as, you know, back-to-back Buffy, you know, it's just give Buffy the Vampire Slayer, in case you're wondering, (laughs) just to be clear, (laughs) that's some kind of slang I'm not aware of. Um, But, you know, it can be something, something that just lets your brain just be in another mm-hmm. moment um you know I think that I remember and I can't remember who said it but I remember reading something about um job the word job you know if you have a job and the initials J-O-B stand for, stand for just outside oh, wow. burnout and I thought <laughs> wow that's when I know that I'm not in mm-hmm. flow is if it starts to feel like I'm just outside burnout then I'm doing a job yeah. you know so I think it is really important to give yourself light and shade, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, so that when you are, there is definitely times for that hyper-focus and that manic, you know, I get a lot of, I'll get a lot of my best work done during those periods, but equally it has to be allowable and okay for like you say to say do you know what today I cannot do these things and because I work for myself I'm going to tell my boss that I'm not going to do that today you know I think that's a trap we fall into so often and we especially when you're in the kind of work that we're in when you feel like this sense of this slightly weird savior complex or people need (laughs) me you know um, and it's a little bit egotistical isn't it but you kind of get into that sort of like but I but I must do this I have life to change <laughs> like you know one day of watching Buffy is not gonna in the greater scheme of things my friend Tanya always said will, always says will you die though <laughs> like, okay, I need to do this and she's like but will you die though <laughs> no probably not immediately well then just take a bit more time <laughs> yeah yeah this constant obsession with like time everything has to be quick do it now do it now um yeah it's and if I don't do it now then it will definitely ruin yeah. the rest of my life yeah I've yet to find anything that's true of actually yeah I no, I don't think I've come across anything yet um yeah, I think, oh, I just have so many thoughts about this. And I think um, also it feels important to mention that like for the people that don't have the um, the privilege, I guess, of being self-employed, that is like a whole other layer because how do you look after yourself whilst doing things that are expected of you by other people? 
um, not just in a client yeah. sense, like if it's actually working with, you know, someone wants you to do this because they're, you know, supposedly their job depends on it or their business depends on it. That's, that's a lot as well. It's an awful lot. And I, I have, I mean, I've been very fortunate. I've been self-employed pretty much for mm. 20 years. Um, and I, you know, I always used to laugh that it was because I was completely unmanageable. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I did have a period in corporate about five years ago and I lasted about three years. Um, but I, I, I had a job when I first graduated from university and it wasn't a particularly um, taxing job, but it did not mm-hmm. work for me um, for lots of reasons. I worked in, I worked on directory inquiries, oh, yeah. you know, directory inquiries, what number do you require? I don't even know if that's a thing anymore, but at the time it was a big thing. And I did it for nine months and I absolutely hated every single really? second of it. Um like the demand avoidant part mm-hmm. of my profile really hated that I had to answer calls in a particular amount of time. You know, you literally had to time your pee breaks, which for someone who's got a propensity to UTIs is not mm-hmm. very helpful or healthy. You know, there was so much competition and like just internal politics. I hated it. And so I am super grateful that I don't have to, um, or that I have the privilege of working for myself now, that like you say, has its other challenges. But I do think for people who are working in some of those environments, it's so tricky. And it's not as simple as just give up your job, especially at the moment. You know, it's like, you know, (laughs) it would be lovely if people who hated their jobs could just go stuff this, (laughs) I don't want to do it anymore. But it doesn't work like that, you know. So I think in those situations, that's when – um taking care of yourself and cutting yourself some slack and actually being around the right kind of people outside of work is mm-hmm. really important you know and I think that's what I'm really grateful for you know although I work for myself and by myself I have a really good network of people who like you and we have only actually met in person twice maybe three times uh yeah maybe once three in times. yeah London Doncaster and then um we sound very well traveled um and then castleford as well (laughs) 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 it's hardly milan paris before is it um but yeah but we speak most days you know so um i think it's so important to have people around you that get you yeah i think that's something that um yeah, I definitely missed for a very long time. And it wasn't until it, I actually had it that I was like, wow, this makes such a big difference. Just accessing community of yeah. like-minded people is really powerful. 100%. Yeah. Um, and so thinking about what, um, one of the final questions that I always ask everyone, because I'm conscious of time, is um, what you're loving at the moment. Is there anything that you would recommend to people that can be an idea or a thing? Um, absolutely anything. I was thinking about this. And I'm thinking it might be quite shallow, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I can tell that other people will be giving you something really profound. Um, so I'm going to give you one thing that I think is quite profound. Um, and I'm sure that you're familiar with it and probably many people are. But I've just finished re-listening um, on Audible because I have to use Audible now. I can't read any longer because my functioning mm-hmm. is out of whack. But I've just finished re-listening to Period Power by Maisie Hill. Are you familiar with it? 
oh, it's a great, it's a book. It's a great book. Um, it's really inclusive. Um, so uh, they're really careful about the way that they talk about all mm. things menstrual. Um, but basically, the it's I uh, heard about it on the radio um, and it's by Maisie Hill and it says, and it's called Period Power, harness your hormones and get your cycle working for you. And basically, it's all about how, for example, for me, the week after I ovulate is my best mm-hmm. cleaning time. So <laughs> it's about understanding the rhythms of your body and understanding like your menstrual cycle and if you are a person who menstruates obviously and understanding what that what impact that has on things like the time the time of the month that you are most mm-hmm. creative and the time of the month that you need the most care and attention and the time of the month that you are most risk taking and it's really good really stuff good. um and the whole of the beginning of the book is basically like all the stuff that you didn't mm-hmm. learn in biology and um, that you really could do with knowing about your own body like things about you know the length of the actual clitoris, that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's really good. So okay. I really recommend that. So that's like okay. my profound awesome. thing. <laughs> and then my not especially profound thing is I've just finished re-watching Humans on Netflix. And honestly, it's one of the best pieces of telly I've ever enjoyed. Um, so I think it was made like 10 years ago. Um, and I don't know if you ever saw it, but it was kind of the first wave of like, artificial intelligence mm-hmm. sci-fi stuff um but it's british made it's a really good cast um and i really enjoyed it so i've just finished watching that um if you're looking for a bit of escapism but also kind of a little bit thinky but not awesome. too thinky so they're buying great two thank you so much and thank you for being on the podcast it's been really great to have you thanks for having me i feel oh. super honored like i was looking at your other gu- list of guests i was like oh, look at that I'm on. So oh, no, it's great to have you here. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. As always, if you'd like to find out more about Heidi's work, head to the show notes where all of the relevant links will be. If you are in need of some signposting or some support after anything that this episode and the previous one with Lydia has brought up for you around neurodivergence, then please feel free to get in touch. Any episode that brings stuff up for you, you're very welcome to get in touch with me if you want to just be heard or to share something. But I think particularly for anyone who maybe has listened to these episodes and might be thinking, wow, this sounds familiar, perhaps I might be neurodivergent, it can feel quite confronting and overwhelming to know where to go so I'm very happy to help with signposting resources and listening to um it's definitely a journey that I've been on over the last couple of years so I'm always always up for holding space for that and that's all from me for today I hope you have a good rest of your day and I'll see you next week for another episode bye bye